Hannah Kim. And I'm Johnny Poetra. Welcome to the 62nd episode of the Even the Little Things podcast. Yes, today we will be doing a part two on our true crime cases series. Yeah, so if that sounds interesting, stick around. Before we start, we just want to remind everyone that we're not professionals in any field and that this podcast is just to talk about the big and even the little things teens go through. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to the Even Little Things podcast. Uh, Duani and I are so excited to have you guys back with us, or if you're new, joining us. Uh, as Duani mentioned earlier in our intro, we're going to be doing a part two of our true crime series. So as you guys know, uh, Duani and I love true crime. And uh, we did an episode a while back um, discussing some interesting true crime cases we found. And um we decided to do it again because a lot of you guys ended up really liking that episode, which we were super surprised about. And we even had some requests to do it again. Um, and, you know, as always, we will be, you know, giving some trigger warnings before the we start the stories because I know that this can be a very sensitive topic for some people. And, you know, we don't mean any disrespect to anyone. But before we begin that, I think we should do a little ramble about our week because, man, has it been like an hectic, like, last week. <laughs> um it it has and I still like my mind still hasn't processed like how it's already December because I swear like it just it went by so fast and one of my teachers he like marks like the days so I think this is like day 64 65 of school which means like we are like one third done with our senior year and it just I'm so so shocked I know it's crazy and like also um (laughs) I just don't like that it's December already oh also today when we're recording it it's um December 3rd which is um like the Heather song day (laughs) of like Twitter um if you guys know like the Conan Gray song Heather like it mentions like 3rd of December um but yeah I just really don't like that it's December um mostly just because I don't know I just feel like we're so far in the year and like I don't know. I've just been really stressed out lately. Like this week, I think I've had like probably one of the worst weeks of my entire life. And I don't even know why. Like, it's not just me being dramatic. Like I just emotionally and like physically cannot handle this week. Like I've just been having so many like assignments and like stressful things happening. And I really can't like pinpoint like why I've just been so upset this week. But like, I have just wanted to like cry so much this week and like not to like alarm or shock anybody but this is just me being like honest like I just did not have a good week and like the fact that it's December like really throws me off because I feel like it shouldn't be like this far into the year. Yeah I'm actually kind of happy that it's December because well I feel like this time is like when seasonal depression really hits, but also I just love December because we finally get like two weeks off. And I feel like ever since school starts, like all I'm waiting is for us to like have our two week break. So I'm actually really excited. It's just that the weeks between Thanksgiving and winter break are like literal. It's like, it's terrible because teachers- like an inferno. Yeah, (laughs) they think that's like a good idea to like shove everything in three weeks and it's like I only I have these many classes and I only have these many hours to do Mm -hmm. all of it like we're not I'm not a machine and they just keep assigning tests and quizzes and stuff and I'm just like I really need my break as you can tell we are 
115% overwhelmed over here. <laughs> um, we are very overwhelmed, but like, we're trying to, I feel like Duane and I, like, even though we're really stressed out, we're still trying to be like, very like positive and still try to be like, happy like whatever we can to make us happy like before we started recording um we were talking about like songs that are stuck in our head and oh my god Dwani said the funniest thing because you know that like tiktok sound like material girl like that Dwani just told me that she for the longest time instead of material girl thought it was like no you're <laughs> what's it what did you say it was I thought it was like just know your words because I swear <laughs> it sounds the same like material girl just know your words like <laughs> <laughs> so we were laughing over that because I just think we needed a good laugh because it's just been so stressful over here like we are so stressed out like I don't think I've ever been so stressed out in my entire life <laughs> like my blood pressure is probably like off the charts um but <laughs> anyways that's what's been happening in our world life oh and then last Sunday I went to go visit Duani at her new work and it was so fun and she works at this very cute place and oh my gosh it was so great I mean I'm not gonna say the name because I want to protect your privacy but like it was a really cute place and I just love it and I'm so glad she's my favorite barista it was so fun and then we also got chipotle which i hadn't had in a really long time so that was a fun weekend but it was yeah but anyways um that was kind of like our little ramble um i <laughs> just basically i was talking about how stressed we are um and i hope we didn't stress you guys out about that but yes that was kind of just like our week our life <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, and so now we should just get right into um, the true crime cases. So, um, you know, before we start, we just want to say that, you know, again, as we said in our intro, we're not like professionals in any field. We're just like, we just found these stories and we're just going to like tell you some information. We heard about it. Um, we don't mean any disrespect to anybody. And also, um, you know, we will be saying trigger warnings for like before each one. So if you guys feel like uncomfortable or want to skip you can if there's like a story you like are not into um and so we will be doing that so Duani do you want me to start or do you want to start you can start okay cool so the first case I have is about Wendy and I know that sounds super weird um but there are so many um cases with like fast food companies and like hoaxes and frauds and things like that and so I just wanted to tell you a little bit about this because I think um like hoax true crime cases I think are like some of my favorite ever and so a little trigger warning for this if you have like any if you're like triggered by I don't know um I guess there isn't really anything too triggering about this except for like maybe like separate talks of like severed body parts so if you're like not into that I would definitely skip but there's nothing really graphic about this it's more about like the fraud and everything that happened and I will get into it once I start talking about the story but yeah there isn't too much it's not really gory or anything like at all um my next case is about like murder so this one's not about murder it's just like a fraud case so basically I don't know if you've ever heard of um you know like the McDonald's like hot coffee thing this is kind of like that except worse because it was fake so um on March 22nd 2005 there was this woman um I think her name is Anna Alea or 
Ayala. I don't really know how to say her last name. Um, so I'm just going to call her like the woman. Um, she um, alleged that she found a severed human finger in her chili at Wendy's. Um, so if you didn't know, Wendy's is like a fast food chain. It's pretty popular. So I think everyone pretty much knows where that is. And she ended up suing Wendy's because she found this like severed um, like finger in her chili. And like, if you found that in your food, you'd probably be pretty disgusted, pretty grossed out. Um, and so for a, like, she was like suing Wendy's and it was like this whole big thing. And everyone, I remember like, um, my parents telling me like when they heard about this, they didn't eat Wendy's for like years because they thought this was like, they thought it was like a huge, like a public health thing and like all this stuff. And, you know, um, because she said that she found a human finger in her chili, um, all of the employees had to um, get tested. They all had to like, um, like basically like get um investigated by the police and they had to like give testimonies and everyone had to check like whose finger this is because not only is it like really disturbing to find the finger in the food but also it was like whose finger is this you know what I mean so um yeah they everyone it was just like a huge mess um and then as police began to do their investigation um it became very clear that the finger did not come from a Wendy's employee or any employees at the facility that provided the ingredients to the chili. So what that means is nobody, it wasn't anyone's finger who made the chili like outside of Wendy's and it wasn't any of the Wendy's employees that work there. Um, and then early investigations reported that the finger might've been fully cooked, um, but the coroner's office determined that that was not consistent with the object um, because it was not consistent with an object that had been cooked in a chili at 770 degrees for three hours. So um, the finger was not fully cooked. Um, so then the police department began to investigate uh, Alea's home in Las Vegas, Nevada, um, but they didn't really disclose any details. And um, rumors began to spread that um, Alea's like dead aunt who might be related to the case, um, like it might be her finger, um, but she really denied that. And she was like, no, of course not. Like this finger completely came from my chili. And she then began to like say that the police were like treating her family, and this is a quote from her, like terrorists and acting against her violently. Um, and yeah, so basically it was like this huge, big controversy. Um, and then later it was discovered because her neighbors um, like tipped the police off and like um, the reporters, because it was like a huge media press case that she previously has filed other lawsuits against other various establishments. And so um, this is like a regular thing for her. Um, so yeah, so basically um, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department arrested her on April 21st, 2005. Um, and she was charged with felony attempted grand larceny and grand theft. Um, the grand theft charge was allegedly in connection with the fraudulent sale of a San Jose mobile home that Aaliyah did not own between September 2002 and November 2003. In reality, it was owned by her live-in boyfriend, according to the statement filed by the San Jose police detective Albert Morales. Um, 
And then the attempted grand larceny charge is connected to the Wendy's chili finger case. Um, a penalty enhancement was issued for inflicting more than 2.5 million in losses on Wendy's as a result of plummeting sales. So um, she's basically like a fraud because she was like suing different businesses for like, like having like negligence, like the, obviously like the finger and the Wendy's um, chili. And like, also she was like, trying to like sell houses that weren't like her like a mobile home that wasn't even hers and so she was just basically trying to like get a lot of money like she was basically a scam artist um and uh, yeah it was just a whole mess and apparently the police announced that they had identified the finger in the chili and that it belonged to Brian Paul Rossiter, an associate of Alea's husband. And basically, Alea's husband um, worked with Rossiter um, and Rossiter had lost his finger in an industrial accident um, at an asphalt company in December 2004 and apparently sold the finger to Alea's husband in order to settle a debt. So, yeah. And then the police received information that um, from an undisclosed caller to the Wendy's hotline um, that this was the case. Um, and then later it was discovered that Brian himself um, told them that's what happened. Um, and so, yeah, uh, this whole like finger chili thing was like a huge like hoax and um, it was like fraud. And this woman basically was just a huge scam artist who was like scamming a bunch of businesses and she was like scamming. She was trying to sell houses that weren't hers. And I, the strangest thing is that like her husband got sold this finger like almost like a couple months prior. Um, I just think that's so strange. Um, so eventually on September 9, 2005, Alea and her husband pled guilty to conspiracy to file a false claim and attempted grand theft. Um, and this is pretty funny. Alea was subsequently banned from life from all Wendy's locations. Um, and then on January 18th, 2006, she was sentenced to nine years in state prison. Um, and her husband, who supplied the finger, was sentenced to 12 years and four months. Um, so they went to jail because, you know, obviously you can't just claim that a very big business has been negligent with your food and putting, you know, fingers in your food. That's like, um, I know it may sound very silly, but it actually costs Wendy's a lot of money. They lost a lot of business, all of their employees, like the ones who worked at the specific location, like some of them like lost their jobs because they were accused of putting the finger in there. Um, and it was just a huge mess. And obviously like uncovering this fraud, like it, she just not only impacted like her own life, but like a lot of other people's lives. So yeah, that was the case of the Wendy's chili finger case. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just so like shocked at the lengths that people go through to like get money. Yeah. Like you have to be a real like psychopath to even like sit there and be like, you know what? I know a way to make money. I'm going to put a finger in my, like, it's just, it's so crazy <laughs> to me how people like come up with this. Yeah, I know. Um, And like, honestly, like, like there's just so many other things that are more worth your time than like trying to scam other people out of like their money and business. You know what I mean? Like, it's crazy. It's just, it's insane to me. Like, 
it's just like, okay, you know what? I need money, so I'm gonna, I don't know, put a toe in my Chipotle and sue them <laughs> and get money. Like, where do you, where do you come up with this? Yeah, I, I know. It's crazy. Um, and when I heard about this case, I was like, I literally cannot believe this. Like, I, I just, I couldn't. And like, and I was like, oh, I have to share it on our podcast episode because I know so many people are going to find this so interesting. I, I found it interesting. I just, uh, that, that, okay, it's not funny, but it's, it's just, I'm laughing because I'm just, I'm just shocked. Like what goes through these people's head? I know it was, it was just crazy. Um, so what's your first true crime case? So my true crime case is the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. And this is like one of the most famous kidnappings. Um, And it took place in 1932. So on March 1st, 1932, Charles Lindbergh Jr. um, He was the, he's 20 months old and he was the son of aviation hero, Charles Lindbergh, um, got kidnapped from their uh, mansion in Hopewell, New Jersey. Lindbergh, who became an international celebrity when he flew the first solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean in 1927, and um, alongside his wife, they went to their son's room, obviously, to, you know, check up on him, and instead, they discovered a ransom note that demanded $50,000 in their son's room. And apparently the kidnapper had used a ladder to climb up to the second floor window that had been left open um, because there were like muddy fingerprints um, in the room. And um, like, because Lindbergh was so famous, he got lots of people to help him and they were offered um, so much help, but also that help, um, you know, like if so many people are helping you, someone's like bound to give you like false clues. So there was a lot of that. And even Al Capone like offered his help from prison. And for three days, the investigators found absolutely nothing. And in after those three days, there was a new letter this time that demanded $70,000 because obviously they had not paid that $50,000 hoping that they would find their son so they wouldn't have to. And the kidnappers got mad and then demanded that they pay $70,000. Um, the kidnappers left instructions for dropping off the money and when it was delivered, when they got like confirmation that the money is there, the Limbergs would um, were told that their baby was on a boat called Nellie off the coast of Massachusetts, but after they went there to search for them, there was no sign of the boat and there was no sign of the child. Um, and Soon after, unfortunately, the baby's body was discovered near the Lindbergh mansion and he had been killed the night of the kidnapping and was found less than a mile from home. Um, So obviously the kidnappers had not taken the baby to Massachusetts, but rather, you know, um, he was found only a mile away from their home. Um, And the Lindberghs were obviously devastated and heartbroken and they ended up donating the mansion to charity and moved away. And for a long time, it remained unsolved. I think for like a couple years, no one could find anything or um, any clues until a marked bill from the ransom showed up. So lots of times when people are like paying kidnappers, they'll the bills that they use um, to give to the kidnappers are marked so that if the kidnappers or whoever uses the money, the, um, 
like the police or whoever gets a notification that that money was used and therefore you know you can use that to trace it back to the kidnappers so the gas station attendant who had accepted the bill wrote down the license plate number because he was suspicious of the driver and they tracked it to a German immigrant and carpenter named Bruno Hoxman. And when his home was searched, the detectives offered, um, or the detectives not offered, they found a chunk of the Lindbergh ransom money. And Hoffman had claimed that a friend had given him the money to hold and that he had no connection to the crime. And the resulting trial was a national sensation. Um, like the prosecution's case was not strong because like the main evidence was just the money. And besides the money, um, the testimony from handwriting experts that the ransom note um, had been written by Hoffman. So they had only the money and that some handwriting experts said that the ransom note had been written by Hoffman, which is not exactly, you know, strong evidence. Um, so they tried to establish a connection between Hoffman and the type of wood that was used to make the ladder because they assumed that he made the ladder and obviously he's a carpenter. So maybe, um, you know, based on the wood that he uses, maybe he built the ladder. Um, and still like the evidence and the intense public pressure was what caused um, people to convict Hoffman, not because there was enough evidence or because they truly found something to, you know, like convict him, but because this was such a sens sensational case and gained like attention from all over the world. And in 1936, he was electrocuted, uh, sorry, I cannot speak. He was electrocuted and in the aftermath, um, Kidnapping was made a federal offense because back then it wasn't. And so after the Lindbergh case, now kidnapping is a federal offense. And um, now it depends on like the state's laws, but back then, you know, you were electrocuted or um, things like that. So he was electrocuted and unfortunately the baby died, but um, they found the killer and hopefully it's the right one because they're are still speculations that it is not the right killer again because he didn't have any evidence but um yeah that's the famous Lindbergh kidnapping case wow that is so like crazy and like I don't know I like when I was like little like I mean my parents were always like you know you have to be aware of like kidnappers and things like that and like I don't know I just think that's so scary like I mean, I, I obviously, you know, it's scary, like, just like the concept of everything that's just really scary and sad. And I really do hope that they caught the right person, because I know that there's so many times where like, they indict like the wrong person, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, I think it's because like, there's so much national like attention that, you know, people feel pressure to like, yeah. convict. And so and they convicted him. And it's not 100% sure if it's the right person or not, but um, back then in like 1932, this was the best that they could do. Um, so yeah. Yeah, um, that's actually, that's that's such a like crazy true crime story. And yeah, I'm glad that, no, I'm not, I'm glad, I'm not <laughs> glad that you shared, I'm not glad that that happened, but I think it's interesting that you shared that. Um, so for my last true crime story, um, I'm going to be talking about, a um a very famous murder case um it was featured on 
the uh, Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. You know how they had some, they made some newer seasons and this was on the first season. And so if you watch that, you probably know what this is, um, but it's like, um, it's called like the House of Horrors, like the French House of Horrors. Um, and it's basically circles around the Dupont de Leon. I don't know how to say their last name because I am not French. Um, my really good friend, Emma, she is probably gonna get really mad at me if she hears me pronounce French the way that I am going to. So I'm just going to call them like the Dupont family because I'm not really sure how to really pronounce the last name, but like it's called like the Dupont de Lyonnais murders and disappearance. So I have no idea how to pronounce their last name. I'm really sorry about that. But yeah, this family um, was murdered. So obviously, trigger warning like there's going to be a lot of like graphic um you know there's going to talk about like finding bodies and like murder and all that stuff so if you're not into that if you're really squeamish I would just not listen to this one so um some background information first um the DuPont family were an old aristocratic French family um and they were just you know a very like wealthy um aristocratic family um they came from like a long history of aristocrats in france and so they were pretty um wealthy and well off and so it really starts with um uh this the father of the family xavier um dupont he was um the son of a like, obviously a very um wealthy aristocrat like aristocratic family and um yeah he he was the father of this family and then he was married to Agnes um, and she was very, um, she was seen as very religious and she was just all around like a wonderful person apparently. Um, and then they had, uh, I believe four children, Arthur, Thomas, Anne and Benoit. I don't know how to pronounce his name. I'm sorry. Um, um, and Arthur was Agnes's child from another relationship. So Xavier and Agnes apparently were um, romantically involved when they were teenagers, but it didn't work out. And Agnes actually dated someone else and got pregnant. But when that didn't work out, she and Xavier actually started dating again. And um, when her first son, Arthur, was two years old, Agnes and um, Xavier got married. So they were seen as this like pretty like wealthy, um, healthy, happy family. Um, you know, obviously everyone like who knew them thought they were like pretty normal and like basically like the perfect family. Um, but as we're going to see behind the scenes, not everything was so perfect. So Xavier apparently had um, some several businesses, but none of them were really successful. Um, Agnes, uh, you know, as I said before, she was, um, she was, you know, very religious and yeah, she was an assistant apparently at a school and her, um, it was a Catholic school. So obviously her religion there, um, and her duties were to teach, um, the children, um, you know, uh, religious, um, things. That's what it says here. Um, and then Arthur, was 20 years old at the time before his death and he was um he was studying for a technical diploma in IT at the St. Gabriel Private College at St. Laurent sur Surveille in the 
I don't even know how to pronounce this department, um, which is an hour away from their home in Nates, Nats. Um, and uh, Thomas, the second oldest son, he was 18 years old at the time of his death. And he was very passionate about music and he was studying it at the Catholic University of, of West in Angers. Um, and so, yeah, he was, um, he apparently he was like a very like uh, quiet boy, apparently, like all of his classmates remember him as very discreet. So that's very interesting. Um, Anne was their only daughter and she was 16 at the time of her death. Um, she was um, very smart. Um, she was very pretty and kind and respectable. And apparently she shared her mother's religious belief. Um, in a couple of sources, it says that she was um, very passionate about like modeling. So I think that's definitely very interesting. And then the youngest son, Benoit, Benoit I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name. He was 13 years old at the time of his death, and he was just, you know, a very young teenager, um, and he obviously also shared his mother's um, religious beliefs. So the timeline is about to get a little messy after this background, um, so I'm just going to start with the family's final actions. So... Um, their lease on their house had been terminated, which is definitely very interesting. All their bank's accounts were closed. The children's school received a final payment. Xavier phoned Agnes's employer to, to inform that she was suffering from a disease and that she, two days later, the employee received a text saying Agnes had been hospitalized and couldn't be contacted by phone. Uh, the following week, the employer received a letter from Agnes terminating her employment and explaining she was following her husband to the United States. A message was placed in their letterbox, return all mail to sender, thank you, and their house had been partially empty. Uh, and then Xavier had bought a cement, a shovel, and a hoe. On In March 2011, Xavier purchased rifle bullets on the 12th of March. Um, Xavier registered at the Charles de Humares shooting range in the north of Nantes, where he visited four, time, four times between 20, the, March 26th and April 1st. He obtained his firearm license on February 2nd, 2011, and his sons um, also started to learn how to shoot, and Arthur was scheduled to shoot. So it looks like he um, purchased these rifles, rifles and were was like learning how to um, you know use firearms and it kind of seemed normal to everyone because he was also showing his sons how to do it and then in also in March a sales receipt from the DIY store was found at the family home the store is located in the central French French department of Indre approximately um it's very close to where they lived and um the receipt was dated on Wednesday in late March, and it listed several purchases, including a large bin liner, a box of adhesive plastic paving, and paving slabs. So it's definitely very strange. On February 1st, um, I mean, sorry, on April 1st, Friday, Arthur, the oldest child, leaves college where he's studying and does not turn up at the pizzeria where he worked and was due to go pick up his monthly wages. His boss was surprised by this um, and was stated that Arthur always came to collect his wages on the first day of the month. So it looks like 
um, Arthur, um, we worked at a pizzeria. He just didn't show up and he didn't even pay, pick up his paycheck, which is very weird because um, most people who work definitely pick up their paycheck. They want that money. Um, and also most people show up at work when they said that they're going to show up. Um, April 2nd, Saturday, Xavier is seen buying four bags of lime, uh, 10 kilogram each from different shops in the area. Um, that's very, <laughs> it's very strange, right? April 3rd, um, Sunday, a neighbor, Fabrice, sees Agnes for the last time. Shortly afterwards, he sees Xavier putting large bags into his car. The couple and three children dine in a restaurant, then go to the cinema. At 10.37 p.m., Xavier leaves a message on his sister Christine's answer phone. We went on we went, he says, we spent our Sunday evening in the cinema together, then in a restaurant, and we just got back. I'm calling to ask if it's too late to speak to you on the phone, and now I see it's gone to voicemail. But I, I was surprised. He spoke to me about Bertram, who's getting ready for his flight, huh? But I thought he'd only just arrived, so I was a bit surprised. Anyway, sending you my love. If it's not too late, call me back or send me a text. I'll call you. Okay, I'm putting the kids to bed. Say hi to everyone. See you soon, maybe. So he left his sister this voicemail. Um, the next day on April 4th, Anne and Benoit do not turn up at their school due to illness. Um, and their friends are very concerned when they're not able to reach them. Um, they remember a rumor about the family leaving for Australia, where their father has been giving a given a drop transfer, but they find it really suspicious that they never confirmed this, and they are not able to contact um, both of these kids by online or text. Um, and then this day also Xavier speaks to his sister for 20 to 30 minutes and she maintains that everything seemed pretty normal. Um, later, Xavier has lunch with his friend, uh, sorry, with his son Thomas at a very high end restaurant and the pair arrive about 9pm. Okay, sorry, sorry, it was dinner. And they order like a lot of stuff. And yeah, uh, nothing really uh, was different about this except the two waiters who were waiting on them at the restaurant remember that Thomas was feeling unwell at the end of the meal and that Xavier and Thomas barely spoke to each other during the dinner. So that's also very, very weird. Um, and investigators believe that Xavier um, murdered his wife and three children on the night of April 3rd to April 4th, and then murdered Thomas on the evening of April 5th. So if this is true, then that is definitely very eerie. On Tuesday, April 5th, um, a bailiff comes to the family's home to co recover a debt of $20,000, but no one opens the door. Um, the family's neighbors dispute Agnes's stated uh, date of death because they claim that she was seen in front of her house on April 5th at noon and again on April 7th. Um, but, you know, it cannot be confirmed. And in addition, an employee of a hairdressing salon near the house claimed to have seen Agnes on Tuesday, April 5th. Um, and the employee says that she came to pick up her wages. It was a Tuesday on April 5th. She needed her wages and she saw Agnes on the pavement on her phone around 12. So this does match up with like other people's um, 
like statements, but they cannot confirm, obviously. Um, and then a friend of Thomas who studied music with him confirmed that Thomas spent Tuesday afternoon with him at the home in Angers where they played music and watched television. Thomas had planned to spend the night at his friend's house, but Xavier phoned his son asking him to return home and has and his mother had been involved in a cycling accident. Thomas then ate quickly and went home around 10. The following day, the friend that was hanging out with Thomas tried to um, like reach out to him and be like, hey, are you coming back? Um, and he only received very brief text messages like, I'm not coming. I'm ill. I'm really ill. And I'm not coming to class. Um, so then two days after that, the friend received a text. Um, I'm out of battery. My dad's looking for a new charger for me. And this is the last time Thomas's friend or anyone heard from him. Um, and it was just very um, strange because usually Thomas would uh, would come and like talk to everybody and like respond, obviously. Um, and then during this week, neighbors heard the family dogs howling for two consecutive nights and never heard them again. So it's definitely very, very weird. Um, and then Wednesday, April 6th, Arthur's girlfriend uh, is concerned after not hearing about him. So she knocks on the family door and the light was on on the first floor, but the family's two Labradors did not bark when she knocks. So you know how dogs bark when you like ring the front door? Well, apparently no dogs were barking. Um, and so um, again, and then the next day is April 7th. This is the day that neighbors um, claimed to have seen Agnes alive. So this doesn't match up with the timeline, which that they all died between April 3rd and April 5th. So it's definitely very, very strange. Um, and then on Friday, April 8th, Xavier writes on the Catholic online forum. And according to the state prosecutor, he went online for the last time, um, traced to the family IP address on April 8th. Um, and then he sends an email to his brother-in-law saying everything's fine and that you'll hear that, that his brother-in-law Bertram would hear more detailed news through Christine, his sister. Um, so that's definitely very, very, very weird. Um, on Monday, April 11th, um, the youngest children's school received a letter signed by Xavier stating that the family will no longer be at school and the family is moving to Australia due to urgent professional changes. And the Catholic school that Agnes was working at also received a resignation letter. Um, so a bunch of resignation letters were sent. Um, and then... Um, you know, the timeline is very, um, very shaky. All we can really go off of is like, um, Xavier, um, Xavier's purchases at this point. Um, and so, yeah. Um, and then Xavier spends the night of 11th through the 12th of April in a hotel, um, near Southern France and pays for the stay with his credit card on April 2nd to 13th. He stays at another hotel, but he pays under a, um, credit card, but under a false name. Um, Wednesday, April 13th, neighbors became really concerned about the family because they haven't seen them. And they call the police on the same day, Xavier spends the night at another hotel. And um, a former girlfriend says that he contacted her, and they did not meet. On April 14th, um, Xavier withdraws $30 on an ATM. And that evening, he 
um, sleeps at a hotel in town, but he is captured by surveillance camera. And that is unfortunately the last known sighting of him. Um, April 15th, he checks out of the hotel and he abandoned his car there. And um, on Tuesday, April 19th, um, the investigation was finally opened. Um, and so, yeah, this is the messy timeline. And um, e yes, the, 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 the timeline is very messy. Um, and then, um, so um, this whole time, like the neighbors like were very suspicious and like they were trying to get the police to go look over there. So the police finally looked over there and there was a note taped to the door that was kind of like, um, hey, our family is moving to the United States. We're going to be under the witness protection program. Do not contact us because um, Xavier is working for the government. We obviously know that that's not true. And when um, a wanted notice is issued for the whole family, uh, during that day, the investigators discover the remains of Agnes and the four children on, under the patio in the back of the garden, and the family's Labrador dogs had also been killed and buried. Um, during the night of April 21st to 22nd, a uh, gun, a weapon, is found um, in the car park of a Formula One hotel. Um, and so it is... It, yeah. And then the whereabouts of the Pontiac, what, which was also being sought, is remain unknown to this day. Um, the investigators turn towards a line of inquiry involving a monastery, and it is suspected that Xavier could have withdrawn the to a monastery where he could be afforded discretion. Um, and so according to the autopsies, the victims were drugged and then shot with a 22-point uh, long rifle as they slept. And... Um, Xavier actually has this exact weapon, which he conveniently inherited from his father three weeks before the murders. And so it's becoming pretty obvious um, who committed this crime, Xavier, obviously. Um, we all know that it was him. And so, yeah, after they found uh, these bodies, obviously they're looking for Xavier. And this is when they discover this whole timeline and they discover his last known whereabouts be and Xavier really had like a whole week head start against the police. And so to this day, they still have not found him. Um, something to know about Xavier is that he has a very like generic looking face. So that could also be a reason. And nobody knows like where he is. Like they still don't know where he is. And there's just been so many like cyber investigations, so many people trying to like, um, you know, find him. And there's so many um, people who like, um, he contacted before he like, disappeared, like just reconnected with randomly. And um, yeah, there's like so many like, things on like Reddit, like trying to find him and all this stuff, but like, he has not been found. And they have not been able to like, um, char like charge formally charge him because they don't know where he is like he could be alive he could be dead he could be like living in some other country and it's just crazy that he got away with like murdering everybody in his family and his dogs and like basically lying about it and like it's just the whole thing is crazy and the whole timeline is so scary to me and like the fact that the part that's like most shocking to me is that they still haven't found him and he's he could still be out there like that's what's scary to me like he could be out there he could just be like eating um a pastry and like a random coffee shop he could be like having a whole new family and they don't even know like who he is like that's just crazy to me um and so that's just what's been the most shocking to me and this is why i chose this case
I remember watching this one with Hannah and it was just so shocking to like um see how like the whole case unfolded because I feel like when you're watching the documentary like they portrayed the father as like you know any normal father and like when you first like see the title of the case like you never think I never thought that I was like, going to be a family member so like I think this is like a really interesting case and the fact that he hasn't no one's ever found him is also so crazy like this one gave me the chills it does it gives me the chills because like he could be like your neighbor and you wouldn't even know it like you know what I mean like mm-hmm. he could be living a whole new other life like or he could just be dead like people have also suspected that he um, might have like committed suicide and like his body is like in like some French um, mountain area where they can't find him or whatever. But like a lot of people believe that he just like ran away and he's still living. I just, it's, it's scary. Like just to know like these kinds of people might like still be out there. Yeah. Ugh, it just gives me the chills. Mm-hmm. So my second case is about Amanda Knox. Have you heard of Amanda Knox? I have, I have heard of her. <laughs> um, so this is like a really, really famous case. Um, maybe a lot of you have heard of her. Um, so Amanda Knox was born July 9th, 1987 in Seattle, Washington to Etta Mellis, who was a math teacher and Kurt Knox, who was the vice president of finance at Macy's. And she has a younger sister and two stepsisters um, because her parents divorced when she was a toddler. She grew up in a middle-class neighborhood, played soccer, was athletic, um, and she earned the nickname Foxy Noxie um, because of her athletic skill at soccer, but it was a nickname that would come back to haunt her years later. She graduated Seattle Preparatory High School in 2005, and she entered UW, which is University of Washington, planning to pursue a degree in linguistics. Um, By all appearances, she was an ordinary college student. You know, she went to parties, she was on the dean's list, she worked several jobs, did classes, all of that. And friends recall her as a kind and gentle individual. And then to pursue her linguistics degree further, she left Washington and headed for Perugia. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but Perugia, Perugia, Italy, where she planned to spend a um, a year at the university for foreigners. In Perugia, Knox roomed with Meredith Kircher, who was a 21-year-old student from London, and she was also studying linguistics. She um, Soon after she arrived in Italy, Knox and Kircher attended a classical music concert, and there Knox met, Knox met a 23-year-old Italian computer engineering student named Raphael Solicito, and soon afterwards, they started dating. So on November 1st, 2007, Knox was supposed to work at a pub called Le Chic, where she had a part-time job. Um, After her boss, Patrick, sent her a text message saying that she wasn't needed, and so then Knox went to Solicito's apartment for the night. So she went to her boyfriend's apartment. Um, Knox and her boyfriend reportedly returned to her apartment the next day around 12 p.m. and found the front door open, the windows broken, and then there was blood in the bathroom. Knox called Kircher's phone, but there was no answer. She then called um, their third roommate because she was rooming with two people, um, and there was no answer. 
And finally, Knox called her mother in Seattle, who told her to call the police. Soon, two officers appeared at the scene, and there were postal police officers who were investigating postal crimes, not murder investigations. They entered the apartment to investigate and kicked the door open to Kircher's bedroom. Inside, they found Kircher's body on the floor covered in a duvet that was soaked in blood. Knox and her boyfriend were taken to the police station, and for five days, they were interrogated. Later, Knox would say that no interpreter was present. Though her mother urged her to flee the country, Knox chose to stay in Italy, wanting to meet Kircher's family. Knox later said that she was bullied and beaten while in police custody. And then finally, her boyfriend, after all those days of interrogation, admitted that Knox um, could have left his apartment at night while he was sleeping. And then when detectives presented this to Knox as an accusation, she broke down. And she signed a confession saying that she returned to her apartment on the night of the murder and had been standing in the next room while Lamumba stabbed Kircher to death. If you don't remember who that is, that's Patrick Lamumba, the um, guy, uh, like the her boss at the pub that she was supposed to work at. And on November 6, 2007, Italian police announced that Kircher's killers had been found and Knox and Solicito had been arrested and Lumumba had an alibi because he was seen bartending at the pub the night of the murder. So her trying to pin it on him didn't work. And so therefore Knox and her boyfriend were arrested. And then two weeks later, a forensics lab reported the result of his examination of DNA evidence that was taken from the crime scene. And the evidence didn't point to Knox or her boyfriend. It pointed to someone else, a guy named Rudy Guaid. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but um, it pointed to Rudy who was a friend of the Italian men who lived in the apartment below Knox and Kircher's apartment. Um, Rudy had been accused of several burglaries, but there were no convictions on his record. However, um, he was immediately arrested in Germany and admitted to being at the murder scene, but he stated that he didn't kill Kircher, and he also stated that Knox and her boyfriend were not involved. So Rudy opted for a fast-track trial and then in October 2008 he was found guilty of the murder and sexual assault of Kircher and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Knox and Solicito chose to have a full trial and were tried together which is it's not unusual to have like two people tried together but um, they chose to have her and her boyfriend be tried together and the prosecutor painted a picture of Knox that shaped how the public saw her. He described her as a sex-crazed marijuana smoker who had dragged her boyfriend into a game of rough sex that ended in Kircher's murder, even going as far as calling Knox a she-devil. And then on December 29, 2009, Knox was sentenced to 26 years in prison and her boyfriend 25 years. And um, Knox his family and many of their supporters, mostly American, protested the sentencing. Um, and with um, a beautiful young woman at its center, the case became an international sensation. Um, and the supporters of Knox claimed that the Italian legal system had major flaws and that Knox was discriminated because she was American and also because she was an attractive young woman. So then in April 2010, Knox and her boyfriend's lawyers filed appeals contesting the evidence and the credibility of the witness. And this process began December 2010. So a year later, um, 
after she was sentenced to murder. And then this time, forensics experts said that DNA used in the first trial was unreliable. And in June 2011, the defense called a witness who testified that in prison, Rudy had said Knox and her boyfriend were not involved in the murder. Knox and her boyfriend had support in their appeal from the Idaho Innocence Project, which um, it's like a legal organization that uses DNA testing to prove um, the innocence of like wrongly convicted people. And then on October 3rd, 2011, two years after their murder trial, the convictions against Knox and her boyfriend were overturned. And um, Knox's prior conviction for defaming her boss um, at the pub that she works she worked at um, still held because you know you can't just like wrongly go accusing people of murder and for that she was sentenced to a three-year term and she was also fined and then upon the announcement of the verdict reporters caught um, her breaking into tears and she flew from Rome um, to London and then she flew back home to Seattle and then not long after returning home, she picked up her studies at University of Washington, where she majored in creative writing. Um, but it, again, in March 2013, Knox and her boyfriend were both ordered to stand trial again for the murder of Crutcher, but this time by the Italian Supreme Court. And Italy's final court of appeal, the Court of Cassation, overturned the acquittals of both Knox and her boyfriend. Um, and she received a statement learning that she would face trial again for the murder. And in um, her statement, she stated that it was painful to receive the news that the Italian Supreme Court decided to send my case back for revision when the prosecution's theory of my involvement in Meredith's murder. And um, if you don't remember, Meredith is Kircher, Meredith Kircher as murder and has been repeatedly revealed to be completely unfounded and unfair. I believe that any questions as to my innocence must be examined by an objective investigation and a capable prosecution. The prosecution responsible for many discrepancies in their work must be made to answer for them and for my boyfriend's sake, my sake, and especially for Meredith's sake. And then after the acquittal was overturned, the new trial began in September of 2013. Because, um, and this time it took place in Florence, Italy, because the court back in Perugia um, wasn't big enough for this. And um, Knox made no arrangements to attend any portion of the trial, um, but her boyfriend attended the trial as it came to end with the verdict. And then um, there was a new piece of evidence. It's referred to as evidence 36I. Um, and it was a minuscule piece of material that was found on a kitchen knife that Italian prosecutors believed was used to kill Kircher. New testing did not find Kircher's DNA on the knife. However, expert found traces of Knox's DNA on its handle. Knox's legal team used the finding in her defense. It means that Amanda took the knife exclusively for cooking matters to keep in the kitchen and to use it, Knox's defense lawyer said. It is something very important. It is absurd to use it for a murder and then put it back in the drawer. Um, and then there, the decision that was made after the second murder trial um, was something that shocked the world. In February 2014, her and her boyfriend were found guilty again for murdering Kircher. Um, and this was like, a jury that took like 12 hours to deliver it. Um, and it upholded the 
previous, um, the very first murder trial in which they were convicted, um, and Knox and her, um, Knox's boyfriend received a 25 year sentence, while Knox, who was convicted of slander in addition to murder, um, because like slander was um, due to her blaming her boss, was sentenced to 28 and a half years in prison. Um, in March 2015, the Supreme Court of Italy overturned the 2014 convictions of Knox and her boyfriend. This ruling was the final decision in the case against the two, and more details on the court's verdict was released in June. After learning about the verdict, Knox issued a statement saying, I am I'm tremendously relieved and grateful for the court's decision. So this one is like a really crazy one because first she was charged for it, and then that decision got overturned because they appealed and then she got charged for it again, but this time by the Italian Supreme Court. And then again, the Supreme Court of Italy overturned the convictions, the second convictions, um, which means that now she is again free. So um, she returned home and she finished her degree and started working as a freelance journalist. And she even released a book and there's even a Netflix documentary about Amanda Knox. And um, in addition to her writing career, she um, appears at events for the Innocence Project. Um, again, if you remember, it was the one um, that advocates for people who are wrongly imprisoned by using DNA. Um, and she became engaged to a childhood friend, but they later split. And then she finally became engaged to um, an author. And then in August, 2017, Knox announced that she was making plans to return to Perugia in 2018. Um, and it was like a follow-up, uh, it was like part of a follow-up for her best-selling memoir. And then in 2019, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that Italy, and this was in France. So the European Court of Human Rights in France ruled that Italy had to pay Knox um, $20,000 for the failure to provide legal assistance and um, an independent interpreter when she was first arrested um, in Italy. Um, and yeah, like that's just been her life after that. She writes books, um, she got married and um, yeah. So this one was a case that just like, it went, it was kind of crazy. Like I said, again, like she was convicted, then she wasn't because it got appealed, then she was convicted, then she wasn't because it got appealed. Um, and I know that there's supporters and there's people who are convinced that, you know, she had a huge part in the crime. And there's also lots of supporters that believe that she didn't. Um, but yeah, that's the case of Amanda Knox. Sorry, I muted. Wow, that's like... I've heard of this case before and what shocks me about it is like how like the Italian um legal system kept like <laughs> like bringing them back and like kept charging them and like it's just crazy like and um I still like don't know like whether like I I know a lot of people have like very strong stances but like I go really back and forth sometimes yeah um I know there's like more details. This is just like a very like broad overview, but I feel like you have to like truly like watch the documentary and like read more about it to like, you know, find the evidence, like lots of times people's reactions after they get arrested and stuff like that play like a huge part in like, you know, your own like 
bias or like your own decision towards like what you think might have happened whether or not you agree that you know she wasn't or she was so um like make sure you like do more research and stuff because this is just like a very very broad overview of um the crime cases that we're presenting yeah um if you guys really like this episode make sure to let us know and we might do a part three um and you can do that by following our instagram at even little things podcast yeah, we hope you really like this episode. Um, and our podcast is dedicated to sharing advice, mistakes, confessionals, and giving you peace of mind on all things affecting teens today. Because it's not just doing about even little things, it's us too. We hope you'll join us next time. Bye.